We continue this morning in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, my sermon entitled this morning, He Has Appeared. One of my joys of my work as a pastor is the intense studying of scripture for the purpose of preaching. I love that part of my job. Most weeks I get to intently gaze at a passage seeking to understand it and preparing to communicate its truth to the congregation. Over the course of my pastorate, it has been continually surprising to me what a concentrated gazing at God's word reveals. Many of those discoveries never make it into one of my sermons, but sometimes they do, and that is the case this week. This week, I was intrigued by the three-time repetition of the word appear in our passage. Three times in the course of five verses, the author uses the word appear. And so I did a quick word study on appear, and it turns out that the word appear only appears in chapter 9 of Hebrews. In the whole book of Hebrews, it appears four times, and all of those are in the ninth chapter, and three of those are in our passage today. It became quickly apparent that the author wants the reader to tune into the appearance of something or maybe more appropriately, someone. So as we go to God's word this morning, as I read again the passage that you heard just now, I encourage you to be particularly aware of the word appear when it appears. Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The main idea from that passage I would articulate this way, when Christ appeared, the remedy that redemption required was provided. When Christ appeared, the remedy that redemption required was provided. Point number one, before Christ appeared, verse 23, before Christ appeared. Before Christ appeared, the remedy which redemption required was insufficient. It was insufficient. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
Our passage starts with the word thus, and thus, like the word therefore, requires us to look backwards to what the author has previously written. Last week, we saw that the author was most recently speaking about the necessity of blood and the necessity of death in regards to covenants and in regards to the salvation of God's people. Blood was required. It was required for the establishment of the old covenant. Blood was necessary for the promised inheritance to be received. Blood was needed for the forgiveness of sins. Blood was imperative for the purification of religious furnishings. And because we know that the practices and the paraphernalia of the old covenant rituals were shadows and copies of the heavenly ones, we know that they were also purified by blood. But the blood of the old covenant, the blood of goats and calves, was not sufficient for the purification of the heavenly realities. And so the author uses thus and the words that follow to continue in his attempt to encourage his readers to consider Christ and to consider Christ's salvation and how it is sufficient. So, verse 23 is again highlighting the insufficiency of the old covenant by contrasting it to the new. Now, it is important this morning to note that though the old covenant was insufficient, the blame for that insufficiency is not in the divine covenant that God made, but rather it's in the sinful disregard of humanity. However, we must conclude from Hebrews that before Christ, And before his sufficient sacrifice, the old covenant remedy, which redemption required, was insufficient. Now in my sermon, the word appear surfaces. Here in my sermon, even before it appears in the passage. We don't see the word appear in verse 23. And yet, as I studied that word and considered its use in Scripture, I came across it being used in the book of Isaiah in a very powerful way. The first chapter of Isaiah is a potent portrayal of the insufficiency of the Mosaic system. The Mosaic covenant did not accomplish and did not secure the redemption of God's people. Now this morning I want to read the whole first chapter of Isaiah because it brings to us a portrait of God's people after almost 700 years of the Old Covenant. It was 700 years since Moses mediated that covenant at Sinai, and the picture that it brings to us is not a pretty one. Now, it's a longer passage, but as you sit and listen, consider how it describes the condition of God's people after 700 years of the Old Covenant. Isaiah 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. 
Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. We get to verse 12, and this is where the word appear appears. And I was drawn to this passage because it speaks of the insufficiency of the Mosaic covenant. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil, your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, "Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross, as with lie, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners 
shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. What a piercing picture of the insufficiency of the Mosaic Covenant that we see in Isaiah chapter 1. And those words that follow the appear speak to how it was insufficient to redeem God's people. Brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews is making this as plain and obvious and irrefutable as he can. The old way is insufficient. We need Christ. Before Christ appeared, the blood and the sacrifices were insufficient. But Christ did appear. Point number two, when Christ appeared, verses 24 through 26. When Christ appeared, the remedy for redemption he provided was sufficient. We read, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The author of Hebrews continues to emphasize the sufficiency of Christ. Christ has appeared not to enter into holy places made by hand, but into the presence of God, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, not repeatedly, but once for all to put away sin. Let's look at those three things. Christ appeared not to enter into the holy places made by hand, but now into the presence of God. Christ's self-sacrifice was sufficient It was sufficient based on this spatial comparison and on an eschatological comparison. That's a big word, eschatological, eschatology. When I use big doctrinal words, it's because I think you need to know them. Eschatology, it refers to the end times. But let's begin spatially. Spatially, he has not entered a space made with human hands. That, That phrase, not made with Hands is interesting. Not made with hands in the Old Testament refers to idolatry. Like in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Now, the author of Hebrews is not suggesting that the Old Covenant cult was idol worship because it was given by God. It was a good thing given by God. But he is saying, as I believe Tom Schreiner, the commentator, puts it, if the recipients of the letter turn to the Levitical cult and sacrifices, now that the better has come, 
then such a move would be comparable to idolatry. Further, Christ's self-sacrifice is superior and it's sufficient because of its eschatological implications, because he appeared, as the writer says, now at the end of the ages. And I take the end of the ages to be the time from Christ's appearance until now. Like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Christ is sufficient because of the space in which he applied his redemption, but also because of the time, the eschatological time in which he brought it. Now in sports, great performers are often noted to be those who performed greatly when it matters the most. Timing matters. What was Hall of Fame baseballer Reggie Jackson's nickname? It was Mr. October. Reggie Jackson Jackson was nicknamed Mr. October because he was a clutch hitter in the postseason. He was his best when it mattered the most. Listen to this. He helped Oakland win five consecutive American League division titles, three straight American League pennants, and three consecutive World Series titles from 1972 to 1974. Then he helped New York win four American League East division pennants, three American League pennants, and back-to-back World Series titles in 1977 and 78. He also helped the California Angels win two AL West division titles in 82 and 86. Now get this. Reggie Jackson hit three consecutive home runs at Yankee Stadium in the clinching game six of the 1977 World Series. Three home runs in a row. He was Mr. October because he was great when it mattered the most. And the author of Hebrews is saying, not only did Jesus do it in a space that mattered the most, He did it at a time that mattered the most, and it is sufficient. We also said that Christ appeared not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. When Christ appeared in the presence of God, it was on the merits of his own blood. It was not the blood of animals. It was not the blood of goats and calves. It was his own blood. And the sufficiency of the redemption he worked is tied to that blood, to its merits and its value and its worth. Preacher and pastor Octavius Winslow, who was a contemporary and associate of Spurgeon, writes, Christian reader, the blood upon which you depend for your salvation is not ordinary blood, the blood of a mere human being. However pure and however sinless, it is the blood of the incarnate God. It is God manifest in the flesh. It is the blood of him who is essential life, the fountain of life, the resurrection and the life. And because of the divine life of Jesus, from thence springs the vitality of his atoning blood. 
Oh, that is a divine principle that vivifies the blood of Christ. This it is that makes it sacrificial, expiatory, and cleansing. This it is that enables it to prevail with God's justice for pardon and acceptance. This it is that renders it so efficacious that one drop of it falling upon the conscience crushed beneath the weight of sin will melt the mountains of guilt and lift the soul to God. When Christ appeared, it was with his own blood, the blood of the man God, the blood of the Messiah, the blood of the creator, and the blood of the savior of the world. It was sufficient. We also read that Christ appeared not repeatedly, but once for all to put away sin. Christ did not appear to repeatedly offer himself in a display of insufficiency, but he came to offer himself once for all in a sufficient sacrifice for sin. The sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is seen in the finality of it. The author of Hebrews has used the phrase once for all, as it's translated in the ESV, numerous times. And he's done so to indicate the all-encompassing efficacy and the thoroughgoing sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. Hebrews 7.27, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is why he appeared. This is why he appeared spatially and eschatologically. This is why he appeared meritoriously and efficaciously. He appeared to shed his blood, to sacrifice himself, and it was sufficient. Point number three, when Christ will appear, verse 27 and 28. When Christ appears again, the remedy for our redemption will come to completion. We read, and just, as, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of money, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, the author of Hebrews, as we have seen, clearly likes to compare things. And in these verses, he introduces another comparison inside the comparison he's already making. But this comparison helps us to understand that when Christ appeared, his sacrifice is sufficient, and when he appears again, it will be complete. The author draws our attention to the similarity between the life of human beings and the work of Jesus Christ. God has sovereignly determined that every man and every woman who lives shall at some time die, and following their death, they will encounter their creator who will also be their judge. The life of humans is not repeatable. 
There are no do-overs. Death is final in terms of our earthly existence. When we die to this world, we die once for all. Jesus' work, just like the life of human beings, is unrepeatable. His death was a spectacularly single event which comprehensively and conclusively dealt with sin. He will come again. He will appear again, but it will not be to deal with sin because it has already been dealt with. And because it has been dealt with, when Christ returns, he will return to bring to completion the sufficient work of redemption that he already accomplished in his death. Now that completion looks backwards and forwards according to the Apostle John. It looks backwards to the completed work of Christ in regards to our sin and forward to our transformation at his appearing in the second coming of Christ. Consider how the Apostle John employs this same word, appears, for the similar purpose that we see in Hebrews. This comes from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 2. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will have confidence, brothers and sisters, when he appears. Because when he appears, if we are God's children, we will not face the judgment of punishment. Our sins have been completely dealt with. We can be confident in that. And when he comes, the overall scope of his work will find completion. Because at that moment, we will be made like Jesus. When he appears, we will be like him in ethical purity. We will be like him in bodily glorification. And we will be like him in eternal fellowship with God. Jesus will appear. And when he does, his sufficient redemption will come to completion. We have seen that before Christ appeared, the remedy which redemption required was insufficient. We've also seen that when Christ appeared, the remedy for redemption he provided was sufficient. And we just saw that when Christ appears, the remedy for our redemption will come to completion. Let's take the last few moments of our time together this morning to make application. Now, our first application this morning pertains to self-sufficiency. One of the main issues coming out of our first point this morning, the insufficiency of the Mosaic Covenant, really pertains to our attempts at self-sufficiency. The sins that Isaiah addressed in the first chapter of the book that is named after him, that we read this morning, is that God's people, 
thought that their efforts in fulfilling their religious duties were sufficient to save them. But God makes it clear that it's not. It's not enough. Their hearts, their thoughts, and their desires and their affections must be pleasing to God as well. But Scripture is clear that for that to happen, for us to have hearts that are pleasing to God, a new covenant was required. When we consider today's passage from Hebrews along with what we read in Isaiah, it makes sense to address humanity's propensity towards self-sufficiency. It highlights this general idol that humans have in regards to their ungodly self-reliance. You know, we try and show ourselves to be sufficient in many different ways. We think we are sufficient in and of ourselves. We think this when we observe our Christian duties, like regular church attendance, disciplined devotions, or a deep understanding of doctrine. We think that is sufficient. And those things are good and they're required, but they are not sufficient to save us. Neither are our good works or our virtuous character. Neither is our proficiency at raising children or our accomplishments at school or our accolades from work. They're not sufficient. Neither are our good looks or our fit bodies. Neither are our education or our ethnic background or our family tree or our net worth. They're not sufficient. None of these things are sufficient. And when we look to them to do what only Christ can do, we make an idol of them. This proclivity to self-sufficiency is a symptom of pride. It is us, just like Adam and Eve, telling ourselves that we can be like God. We are self-sufficient. We don't need anything else. Well, the author of Hebrews shows us how incorrect we are if we think that we are sufficient. And the only remedy when we think that our job performance or our scholarly accomplishments or our religious piety is sufficient to save us, the only appropriate response is to repent to repent of our pride and to repent of our vain attempts at self-sufficiency. I have been helped immensely in the past few weeks by reading and praying prayers of other people, even as I did this morning in the elders' prayer. I would like you to prayerfully consider this prayer of repentance, a repentance from self-sufficiency. It was written by Scotty Smith. And it begins with a passage for, from 2 Corinthians. Just listen to it. He begins by quoting the scripture. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we, had, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. And then Scotty Smith shares this prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, there are some lessons in this life of grace I seem to have a hard time remembering or at least accepting. Knowing my limits is certainly one of them. The idol of self-sufficiency is formidable. Forgive me for not wanting to need the gospel, your spirit, and your community as much as you say I do. Thank you for the, gifts of, the gift of Paul's story. Thank you for an apostle of grace who boasted in his weakness that Jesus might be the hero. Thank you for the model of a lover of God who is utterly dependent on God, on the God he loved. I want to be much more like Paul. So, Father, as this day begins, I forsake the illusion of my competency and cast myself on you, the God who raises the dead. I'm not facing deadly perils like Paul, but I am facing broken people I cannot fix, injustices in the world I cannot right, lingering wounds I cannot heal, stubborn addicts I cannot free, an aging process I cannot reverse, cold marriages I cannot thaw, and my own heart that I cannot change. Grant me grace to accept my limits and faith to trust you more, and grant me a greater willingness to let friends enter my struggles and carry my burdens. I want to know you more intimately as the Father of mercies and as the God of all comfort for myself and those I love. Amen, I pray in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, let us repent. Let us repent of our pride. And let us repent of the sinful illusion of self-sufficiency. And let us avail ourselves of the only truly sufficient salvation, that of Jesus Christ. Our last point of application this morning pertains to death. We have in this passage of Hebrew a helpful reminders, a helpful reminder to believers and a challenge to unbelievers. And it comes in the form of a question. What do you think happens when you die? Atheists, are generally agnostic about what happens when we die. They believe that there is no afterlife and that after death we become nothing more than fodder for the worms. There are some atheists who have a feeble, a feeble agnosticism about the afterlife, surmising or perhaps hoping that the soul continues in some form when our earthly life stops. From Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, we get the idea of reincarnation, the cycle of death and rebirth. Reincarnation, reincarnation means taking on another body or another existence in life which follows the one that has ended. This is actually very popular in our culture. Spiritualism is a general term that encompasses many who believe that the afterlife is provided a, a realm where spirits continue to evolve. They believe that after death, the soul lives on in some ethereal spirit world. And there are many other views of the afterlife, whether it be Nirvana or Elysium or Shangri-La or Valhalla. But the creator of the universe says otherwise. God is clear that it has been appointed for man to die, and after that, there is judgment. Judge, God will judge the quick and the dead at the return of Christ. Some will be resurrected to eternal life and others to eternal punishment. But there is an eternal conscious existence for all people. 
There is no ceasing to exist, and there are no do-overs. There is death, and there is judgment, followed by eternal reward or eternal punishment. I recognize that sounds daunting, but understand that it is daunting. Because if on that last day you are relying on yourself or you're relying on some action of yours that you think will be sufficient, you will find that the life you lived and the actions you took are not sufficient to save you. They're not sufficient to save you from the punishment that your sin deserves. But here in this glorious news that this passage of Hebrews gives to us, we see that Jesus is sufficient to save us. If we turn from our sin and turn to Christ and to his work, there is sufficiency for our salvation so that we might live eternally with God. For those who surrender their lives to Christ, the death that has been appointed for all of us, the death that is followed by judgment is a death and a judgment unto eternal life. And so we can apply the text this morning by understanding rightly what death is and what comes after it. We can apply the text by repenting of our self-sufficiency and pride and by resting on the sufficiency of Christ through faith. Before Christ appeared, the remedy which redemption required was insufficient. When Christ appeared, the remedy for redemption he provided was sufficient. And when Christ appears, the remedy for our redemption will come to completion. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for its testimony of the sufficiency of the work of Christ for our salvation. Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for the pride which would lead us to believe there is anything that we can do that is sufficient for our salvation. I pray, Father God, you would reveal the utter nonsense of that idea to us and that you would open our eyes in a more profound way to the glory of Christ in his sufficient sacrifice. And I pray, Father God, by your spirit, you would help us to understand death accurately. That we all face it, and that after it comes judgment. And that judgment will be to eternal life or eternal punishment. So help us, Father God, to put our faith in the one who conquered death, and in the one whose sacrifice was sufficient to save us. In Jesus' name, amen.